0: Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord God, you are one who does not desire any of us to perish. You are one who uh, delights in us and delights in speaking to us. And so, Father, we again um, look to you like little children who are helpless on our own, who depend upon you, our Father, and we ask that even now, you would shepherd and guide and strengthen us. That you would draw us to yourself and make us more like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So over the last few years, I think I've been especially impressed by, as I've been studying scriptures, a theme can, you know, regularly comes out to me that I am increasingly convinced by, and that is that we, each of us, are called into a collective project by God. That one of the most central things for our lives as followers of Jesus is that together we are, as we've been speaking throughout the last few weeks, months even, called to be Christ's beautiful church for the good of the world. That we, together, in the way that we love each other, in the way that we relate to each other, in the way that we relate to the world, are designed by God as His community to show forth Christ's greatness that the world might see Jesus more clearly. When we speak sometimes about the chief end of humanity is to glorify God, when we say whatever you do, do it for the glory of God, this is what we're talking about. As a team, as a community together, we are to be Christ's beautiful church for the good of the world. And actually, in in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus offers us the blueprints for how to do this. Interspersed in the narrative where he's describing the story of Jesus, as we've said before, there are five teaching blocks, each of them telling us this is the kind of church that I want my church to be, Jesus is saying. So, if you remember way back when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount, that's the first of the teaching blocks, and Jesus saying, my beautiful church is a community of integrity, where it's not just a surface religiosity, but there is a depth of commitment that goes all the way down to my kingdom and my teachings. A little bit later, when we were looking at chapter 10, the second of these blocks, we see Jesus saying, my beautiful church is a community on mission." As, as they live throughout the world in their deeds, whether it's through work or through service, and especially in their words, they are helping people know about me, giving their lives so that people might know about me and join this community. It's, it's a community on mission. Just a couple weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 13, you might remember that Jesus was telling us that this community is a community that comes subtly like, like leaven or like a mustard seed, and Jesus is saying, my, my community, my beautiful church is one that grows not through flashy moments of power, but through humble hopefulness. That's my beautiful church. Well, this morning as we're looking at, at Matthew chapter 18, we come to the fourth of these instructions, these blueprints about how we are to be Christ's beautiful church. It actually is the entire chapter of 18. We're only looking explicitly at the first 14 verses, but I'll even talk a little bit about the rest of it. And, and it's focused around a very simple idea. Instead of focusing so much on how we are to love the world, it's talking more about how we relate to each other. Jesus says, my beautiful church is a community that loves each other. More specifically, what Jesus tells us is that his beautiful church is a community where we view each other as extraordinarily important. So it begins um, the passage by the disciples asking kind of a wrong headed question. Perhaps you notice it says, At that time, where Jesus has been talking even recently about this community, they came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest? in the kingdom of heaven. Now the question that they're asking is not so much, uh, tell me which one is the top dog. It's not, that, that, that question actually kind of comes a chapter later. It's, it's more talking about pecking order, about status. You know, in every, if you think about it, any community, there usually is some sort of way of organizing who is top, who is greatest. I've heard it said that different cities work this way. So in Washington DC, it's about who you know, like how powerful are your friends? In Boston, it's about what you know, like what degrees do you have and where are they from? In Chicago, it's how much you do, like what were your sales figure last quarter? Each of those is kind of what establishes the pecking order, and the disciples are saying, okay, we've got this new community that you're building, Jesus. How does that work? How can we find greatness within that? We want to know how to make sure other people admire us and treat us as important, And what Jesus just wonderfully does is he turns their question absolutely upside down, and he turns this from being a question about how you are viewed as important to a question of how you view others as important. And he begins this with using a visual aid. He notices a, a child playing, you know, not too far away, and he asks that person to come over, you know, just... If you're imagining, imagine like, say, maybe Abby Owens, you know, like a two or three year old girl. And he asks her over and he basically puts her right in front of the disciples and says, You're going to have to change and become like this little one to be a part of my kingdom. Now, what does he mean to become like this little one? We should recognize that how children are viewed in that day is different from how they were viewed in our day. Our day, you know, I believe the children are the future. They're important. We, we speak of children sometimes almost as, as being innocent or being pure. None of those connotations were how the child was viewed in that day. In that day, a child was seen as being at the very bottom rung, having no power, being Helpless, having no really important qualities, being without any status. And, and that's actually Jesus' point. Do you notice when he says right after that, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear what, what Jesus is saying? He's, he's saying you're trying to move upward. I'm telling you you've got to go downward. You're trying to figure out how to get increased status. I'm saying you need to get rid of that. You need to let go of any jockeying for position. You need to stop worrying about how to be esteemed in the eyes of others. That's completely the wrong direction in my kingdom. And this isn't just words for Jesus. This is Jesus. I mean, if, if you think about it, Philippians 2 tells us about how Jesus, being in very nature of God, did not hold on to the glory he had with God, but became one of us. He went downward, eschewing all status and all impressiveness. And he says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, it looks the same. It means going down. And what we see is is that the purpose for that is not just to let go of that that, competitiveness, although that's important. Jesus actually wants to redirect the disciples. So once, once he says, you are are no longer worrying about how important you are in the eyes of others, that will free you up for something even more important, and that is to view others as being important. Notice, that's the the direction he takes this. Verse 5, whoever welcomes one such child, remember a child here, one such child is talking about fellow believers, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Do you see how now he's moved? Instead of worrying about how we are being welcomed or honored, he says, here's the thing. What's important is how you honored others. See, in my, in my beautiful church, my community is a community that will honor one another and treat one another as incredibly important. And the reason for this, what is the very foundation of this, is found in the very way that God treats us. So notice again what Jesus just said when I quoted verse 5. He says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Think about that. He's saying, a believer, you should treat them as you would treat me. A believer should be given the very status that I have. A believer has bound himself to me and I have bound myself to him or to her, says Jesus, such that they have the same status that I do. Now think about that for just a moment. Jesus is the the son of God. He is the center of the universe. He is royalty without any qualification, the child of God. And he says, this is how we are to treat each believer. We are given, in God's eyes, extraordinarily high status. In a case we missed that in verse 5, Jesus comes around in verse 10 and says something very, very similar. Do you notice if you have it open, verse 10, where Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones. That's just, if you think about it, the inverse of what he says in verse 5. If he says, verse 5, welcome, do not despise, it's saying the same thing, just in negative. One of these little ones, again, the same thing as the children. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Why? For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. Now, if you're confused by that verse, so am I. I, I don't actually know what Jesus means when he says, you're, there are angels in heaven. In fact, that's one of the interesting things. Like, every commentator is kind of scratching their head about that one part. But the nice thing is, everyone's in agreement about the point that Jesus is ultimately making. And that's a point about status. He's saying, the angelic representatives of each believer, and again, don't know exactly what that means, but the angelic representatives of each believer They're not in the basement office with no windows by the boiler room. They actually are placed right next to the Father, and they see God face to face. And they don't even need to schedule an appointment with God through a secretary. They have unlimited access to Him. That is incredibly high status, and the the implication is is if, if because angels represent us, they are given that status... Think of how important God views each one of us. So my phone has a setting that I have actually never used, but I've, I've noticed it before, that it says if I want, even when I shut the ringer off, I can make my favorites still get through to me. So what this is saying here is that, that each believer, that you and I are on God's favorites list. That at any point... At any moment, we can interrupt God and he will receive us and listen to us because we are so extraordinarily important to God. Which feels almost blasphemous to even say when we think of God, the creator of the universe, valuing you and me so highly. And it's not just a matter of bestowing honor upon us and and welcoming us and giving us access. If you you continue on, notice that it's also about the depth of God's commitments to us. So at an intuitive level, and I don't know if we're even conscious of this, but I think deep down oftentimes we think, that as long as we are being faithful and you know, regularly praying, seeking to be obedient, God's eyes are fixed upon us, and He delights in us and rejoices in us. But and that part's true. But if we, like, kind of miss some quiet times, then then kind of God starts not noticing us as much. Or if we if we for, were to somehow stray away, then there might be a sense where God just kind of goes like, oh. Fine, if that's, if that's who that person's going to be, that's who that person's going to be. But Jesus says, if you even have a minute sense that that's true, then you are completely missing the way that God views you. God, God views you like a shepherd views his sheep. So, in verse 12, what do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 of the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? If a shepherd has a hundred sheep, each of them are valuable to him. And if they're on a hill unsafe and, and one sheep just kind of dumbly wanders in the wrong direction, the shepherd doesn't go, well... It's his fault if he dies. I mean, that's not the way a shepherd would work. What a shepherd does is like looks at the 99, make sure they're safe, and then he goes as quickly as he can to rescue that one, to bring him back because that sheep is important to him. And Jesus says, in the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. These little ones, again, is talking about us. Our Father in heaven is views each of you as incredibly important to him. In his eyes, you are royalty because of your connection to Jesus. You are sons and daughters of the living God, and he is committed passionately to you. Now, that's true for you, you individually, but I, I, I want you to understand That's true for all of us. Let me ask you to do something, and maybe this will feel weird. I don't care. If you would be willing for just a moment to look around, I realize we all have masks, but to look at each other, to look at the people. I know we're all far away from each other, and it feels weird, and normally you're supposed to look at me, but to actually just take a moment and notice the people that you're sitting with, do you realize that you are sitting in the presence of incredibly important people? I'm not trying to say this just to kind of give us a self-esteem boost. I'm saying this is what Scripture tells us. The people that you are surrounded by, their angels have unlimited access to the Father in heaven. The people you are surrounded by, God is so passionate that He is going to pursue if anyone strays. The people you're surrounded by are glorious sons and daughters of the heavenly King. They are of extraordinary importance to God. And the implication of this, and this is where Jesus is taking us, is that means they should be of extraordinary importance to us. He, he gives us really two directions of how we should live that out. First, that means that, that we are called to honor each other as of being supremely important. So if you think about verse 5, when he says, welcome one such child is to welcome my name. And then verse 10, do not despise. That's hospitality language. Saying, welcome them in, honor them, treat them as important. If we think for a moment about how we are inclined to treat people that we just meet, there is this natural tendency that I think we have to immediately size someone up. We notice their clothes, we notice how they conduct themselves, we see maybe if they're really confident, maybe we find out that they're you know, having some position of importance, we start kind of treating them with a certain degree of deference. On the other hand, if it's just kind of this dirty T-shirt and they're just kind of awkward and, and actually unpleasant, we start kind of maybe distancing ourselves and hoping the conversation will, will come to an end quickly. Sometimes we can check ourselves and notice that and stop it, but that oftentimes is our natural tendency. And Jesus just invites us to view things differently, that when we are in the presence of a fellow believer, no matter how awkward they might be, no matter what their status might be in the world's eyes, we are in the presence of greatness in God's eyes. And we are called to honor each other in that way. As I was thinking about what this looks like, it came to my mind one of my personal heroes who's Fred Rogers. Which I know maybe sounds silly, but I think the more that our culture has come to recognize that he's not just Mr. Rogers, but he's a human being, the more that we've recognized that there was something about him in the way that he honored others that is, that is praiseworthy. So there's this story, and here's the problem. Um, My family will tell you that I'm just like, I don't know if it's COVID or if it's just me getting older. I have a hard time saying anything that I think is moving without crying. So I'll try not to this time, but I don't think I'll succeed. So there's this story, and there's so many good Fred Rogers stories, but there is a story um, of this woman who now is in her 40s that I came across the other day. She said, when I was a toddler, my mom worked for the Pittsburgh PBS station wherein Fred filmed his program. So when I was four years old, My mom had to stop by the station with me in tow. Just as my mom started to turn left into a hallway, I saw him. Real. Live. In person. Mr. Rogers, dead ahead. I did not follow my mom, but I bolted to my sweater-clad hero. I wrapped myself around his legs, sitting on his feet, and screamed at full volume, Mr. Rogers, I love you! My mother was mortified. But you know what Mr. Rogers did? He peeled me off his legs, he sat down on the floor next to me, and screamed just as loud as I did, and I love you too! And to this day, I believe that he meant it. Now, what I love about that is how he, even though he didn't know this other person, just saw this person, this little child, as being tremendously worthy of honor. Can you imagine if that is how we would be with each other? To treat each of us with that same dignity and respect, recognizing that we are in the presence of people who are extraordinarily precious to God. We're called to honor one another is important. And and what Jesus also tells us is that if, if we treat each other in that way, this also means that we treat each other's spiritual well-being very, very seriously. That's the second implication of that. Uh, We see this in verses 6 through 9. Perhaps you notice when reading through verse 6 through 9, there's this repeated word stumbling or stumbling block or cause to stumble. And, and it's using, you know, a journey imagery, you know, when you're hiking, say you're hiking on a really narrow path and there might be, you know, a steep fall on one side, stumbling could be incredibly dangerous. So you could really hurt yourself or you could fall off the path and even die. And, and so that image of stumbling here, of causing someone to stumble, it's, it's saying causing someone to sin in such a way that they do great harm to themselves or even fall away from following me, Jesus is saying. And he says we should treat this possibility of causing someone to stumble incredibly seriously. I mean, at one point he says in that paragraph, this is the second time he says something like this in in Matthew if it were the case that somehow one of your hands or one of your feet or one of your eyes would cause you to stumble, then you need to understand it would be better to maim yourself if that meant that you could remain faithful to me. There's no comparison. But what is perhaps the most sobering statement, I think what drives it in this context, is is what we see in verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, just stepping back for a moment, do you hear the depth of passion that Jesus that God has. He's like these are my little ones. You better not hurt them. There's this fierce protectiveness. And what he's also saying is that we we have a responsibility What we can do can either hinder or help each other and we better be careful to make sure that we are not in the way that we act towards them or the way that we act in front of them to lead them away from Jesus. We need to be sober about this, Jesus is saying. How might we cause someone to stumble? In this context, one of them is is if we choose to, to push away those that we should welcome. Imagine if in a community... Because you look wrong or act wrong or somehow are less impressive by the world standards, if you are never welcomed, think of what that might tell you about how in your mind God views you. Or you can cause someone to stumble through hypocrisy. If if people see someone saying one thing is important but acting differently, they will wonder, is this even true? Or we can cause people to stumble, as we talked about last week, by instead of focusing on Jesus, focusing on something else, and slowly moving away from what matters most, the point is how we act, who we are, how we relate to people, we can lead people astray, and we must, must be careful about that, he says. Now, the flip side of this is also true, that you and I have, have the capacity to help each other, to help each other more faithfully follow Jesus. In the way that we show love, we help people to experience the Father's love. In the way that we seek to be faithful, we help people aspire to that same faithfulness. In the way that we seek to listen carefully and follow the gospel, we help other people see what's central. The point is that you and I have a responsibility to each other. We must treat each other's spiritual well-being incredibly seriously. And Jesus actually takes it not just to the don't cause someone to stumble, but to the positive side. If we were to continue going beyond verse 14, we'd see Jesus speaking about what happens when one of your fellow brothers or sisters strays. What happens when they sin, potentially even sin against you, and turn aside? In our culture, there's generally the sense that if someone does something wrong, well, we need to honor their privacy. We need to honor their boundaries. We need to leave them to it and grieve. And and Scripture, actually, there, there's a hint of this that is true. That is, ultimately, it is a, that person's responsibility. It's never our calling to coerce, to manipulate. And, and if we were to continue in Matthew 18, we'd see that there's a certain point where, where there is just a releasing a person to their sad decisions. But not before bending over backwards to seek to bring them back. Not before someone lovingly, gently seeks to have that really awkward, hard conversation of saying, do you understand, I don't think this is where Scripture is calling you to. Even sometimes to bring other people into that conversation, fellow believers, because one person's sin is not a private thing. We all are in it together, and to come together and to plead, again, not coercively, but holding out the truth in love. And Jesus says when those things, sorry, when after that conversation we see repentance, our calling is to forgive, no matter how bad what it was was, no matter how repeated it was, to forgive because that is how the Father has forgiven you. And what underlies all of this is the same thing we've already seen, that your God is the shepherd who will leave the 99 for the one. That's how committed he is to our spiritual well-being. And so as those who follow our shepherd, that is how we should be towards each other. To to never think that someone's straying is just, uh, and just to leave it be, but to grieve over it because each of us are so incredibly spiritually important before God. This, Jesus, this is is what my beautiful church is. It's a community that recognizes, that honors, that treats with reverence each other. Because this is how God views each of us. And this is actually not just how God views us, but how we actually are in God's sight and how we one day will fully be. C.S. Lewis, in one of his uh, famous sermons called The Weight of Glory, reflects on on this reality of how, how our future selves should change the way that we see each other even right now. He writes, There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is, compared to ours, as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, exploit, it is a serious thing to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as were you now to meet them, they would only be in your eyes equivalent of a nightmare. Then Lewis goes on to say, All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. Let me ask you, what? What would it look like if we really lived that reality out? If we saw each other not just as interruptions, or even at times as just friends that we enjoy hanging out with, although they are that, but as people whose glory is far beyond our comprehension, who would blind us with their brightness were we to see their future selves. What would happen if we would be a community who sees each other as God sees us? What would that look like? Can you imagine? I'll tell you, I think I can. And, and that's because I think in our community we see glimpses of that. We see in our community ways of how we have, show affection towards each other and we just so delight in each other. I've seen in our community the ways that, that we earnestly seek to help each other to grow in praying and encouraging one another. each other. I, I've seen moments where we've had those hard conversations because we so care deeply about their spiritual well-being and, and moments of beautiful forgiveness and that is the work of Jesus among us. And I want to encourage us to keep moving in that direction, to keep letting the Spirit of God work in that way, leading us to that place. Because here's what happens. When when you treat me as someone who is important in a way that I don't deserve, but in a way that God sees me as, as you treat me in that way, I begin to see in a real sense how God views me how God loves me, and as that happens, that frees me to begin to give that same love and honor to you, and as we grow in that together, that frees us as a community to show that same love, that joyful love to the world around us, and do you know what that is? That is beautiful. That is the beauty of Christ Jesus that the world is enabled to see. Jesus says, my beautiful church, the community that I am building is a community that treats each member as incredibly important. And I invite us even now to spend time in prayer asking God for help, maybe acknowledging before him where we have treated others as insignificant, even though God so passionately cares for each of us. And after some time of prayer and confession, I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes' time.